Welcome back to the 44th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with noted mystery author, Aaron Elkins. Well, this is uh, Jeffrey Deaver, author of, uh, most recently, The Burning Wire, and uh, soon to be author of the next continuation James Bond novel. I spend a lot of time writing, a lot of time researching my books, um, but uh, when I'm not doing that, I, I love uh, listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast, which you can hear at readingandwritingpodcast.com. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today, my guest is Aaron Elkins, author of the award-winning Gideon Oliver Mysteries. The fourth Oliver book, Old Bones, received the 1988 Edgar Award for Best Novel. Elkins' latest book is a standalone thriller, The Worst Thing. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to happy to be here. Sure. Well, I just mentioned your new thriller, The Worst Thing. If someone listening hasn't heard about The Worst Thing, can you give them a sense of what to expect with your new novel? Uh, yeah, it's about a hostage negotiator who has a fear of kidnapping himself because he was kidnapped as a a five-year-old, uh, and, uh, and and held captive for for um, almost uh, two months for, for sixty days, and it scarred him for life. But it also left him with an interest in in the field. And so he's not so much a negotiator. In fact, he's not a negotiator. He's someone who trains people who are going to be negotiators or trains corporate security people. But he doesn't. He won't get involved in negotiating himself or talking to kidnappers. That's too close for comfort. Well, he's also, a, a, ever since those uh, the kidnapping, he's been a victim of uh, panic attacks, and he, and he carries a, a vial of Xanax with him to make sure he won't get them. Making a long story short, um, one of his fears is, uh, kind of fears, but a fatalistic attitude that my, one of these days I'm going to get kidnapped. You know, it's kind of like people think whatever is the worst way to that they think there is to die, they're probably going to die like that, of whatever they're afraid of. So he gets talked into going to Iceland to work on a training program, uh, and uh, his wife gets kidnapped by accident. She's with, with somebody who's the focus of the kidnapping, and Brian, Brian Bennett's the na his name, uh, offers himself in her place and is taken, and so... This is the worst thing you can imagine. He finds himself in a an ice cave in Iceland, dark cave with a metal collar around his neck, chained to the wall. And the, and the question now is, can he can he outwit his own panic? They take his medications away, and can he outwit his kidnappers? And I, I imagine I'm not giving anything away if I tell you that he does both by the time the book is done. Right. And I, 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 I've had I have panic attacks for ten years myself. Uh, so I, I know what I'm <laughs> talking about. And, oh, I, you know, whenever I talk about what the the thing is, it, the plot is, it sounds so unrelentingly grim. Uh, <laughs> but I don't I don't think it's a grim book because it's in the first person, and I've tried to make the hero as witty and self-deprecating as, as me. <laughs> well, great. So, as you mentioned just a moment ago, you you suffered from panic attacks yourself. Yeah, I sure did. Um, at what point did you decide to use your own experience with panic panic attacks as the basis for a novel? Is it something you've been thinking about for a while? No. Well, yeah. Someone suggested it uh, ten years ago. That, or maybe seven or eight years ago. 
that it would be cathartic if I wrote such a novel, and so I started this. And it wasn't cathartic, it was nervous-making, so I, I put it down. <laughs> but then when I was researching another book, I set a book on the, on the Amazon River with Gideon Oliver that you were talking about. And so I went down, I always, I always go wherever, I, mean, I always go to research the setting. So I went down and, uh, and booked a ride on a, a kind of a packaged a delivery boat. There's no official mail, but it's sort of like a mail boat that goes down a very narrow, isolated part of the Amazon. Took my medications with me. They're Xanax, because uh, I never travel without them. Uh, and w when I made the boat, and we were about seven hours underway, and I realized I didn't have the Xanax. And oh, no. usually the attacks would come in the middle of the night. And so I was scared to death, because these, these were really horrific uh, things. It, 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 you know, uh, celebrities today talk about their panic attacks. Uh, Johnny Depp, uh, uh, who else has panic attacks? Tony Soprano has panic attacks. Um, uh, who else? Uh, Kim Basinger, James Garner, I forget a whole bunch of others. Right. But mostly they're talking about, um, oh, my hands get so sweaty and my pulse rate goes up when I have to go before the camera. That's stage fright. A panic attack is another country entirely. You really, truly think uh, you can't possibly live through this any uh, another five seconds. Or you're either your heart's going to burst or you're going to go uh, crazy. And so I was very worried about that. And, of course, the worry made the panic attacks more likely, and the knowledge that the panic attacks were more likely made the worry heavier. <laughs> and so my first plan, anyway, I couldn't, I couldn't, what was I going to do? Go to the, the captain, couldn't exactly call him a captain, and, and, uh, and ask him to turn around because I was afraid. You know, and, and, no, I had to go on the trip for 12 days and nights, and there's no no place to get off, and there, and there are no 7-Elevens and no pharmacies there. So my first plan was never to go to sleep, you know, just to stay awake. So I was that afraid of the attacks. That didn't work. I fell asleep after, I think, the second night and had a horrific attack and then just started to, to deal with them because I had no choice. And, of course, they didn't kill me because they, they never kill you. And, and they didn't drive me crazy because they never drive you crazy. Which, by the way, are things that you know if you've ever been to a been for treatment for panic attacks. But when you get an attack, that all goes out the window. There's no room in your mind for rational thought. You're just simply terrified of being up. There's, it's not as if there's a source for it. It's not like being terrified of a bridge or terrified of a height. You're just plain terrified. And so I did apply some of the things that I had learned and asked by about the eighth or ninth day. I, night, I saw a turnaround and, and licked the darn things. And after 10 years, I don't have them anymore. And that gave me, I did write that book that was called Little Tiny Teeth. And that gave me the courage to go back to, uh, to this one. And now I've uh, completed this one. That's great. Yeah. Did, was, did you ever consider tackling the subject of panic, panic attacks in your Gideon Oliver series, or did you no, think? It... No, no. When I when I started the first time through this book some five or six years ago, I never wanted to write another word about the word sure. about panic attacks. So no, no, no. Those books are are the the, the kernel of those books is always some. Forensic anthropological, um, right, right, yeah. But, but and I'm, I am that was my field. I was a professor of anthropology for many years, and I did well. I still do that. I work as the uh, 
on my local uh, cold case task force as the, the skeletal analyst, which usually consists of bones coming in with people saying, is this human? And me responding by saying, no, this is an elk or this is a deer. Right. Or what, this is even a, ra- even this is a rabbit. <laughs> and, and so when you were on that boat in the Amazon, <clears throat> What techniques or what did you use to to try to get a handle on them? Were you were you doing any kind of meditation or or, or what were you? I, I, I tried, but you know what really worked, and it is a it is a, a a recognized therapy. It's called flooding or implosion therapy, and uh, someone wants to see how it works. That there's a, a YouTube of a a woman who she doesn't have panic attacks. She has um, a phobia of elevators. And the idea of getting on an elevator just turns her into quivering jelly. I think if you put in phobia, elevator, flooding, or flooding therapy, uh, probably this YouTube would come up. And so a therapist wants her to get on an elevator, and she tries once or twice, and she just, you know, crumples into a heap. She can't possibly face it. Eventually, she gets on, and the idea is it's kind of sink or swim. You get on that elevator, and you ride up, and you ride down, and you ride up, and you get turned into a quivering mass, and you cry, and maybe you scream, and you just stay on it until it goes away. It's called implosion therapy or flooding therapy. That, and in fact, if possible, you concentrate on the feelings. You make yourself feel it so, so that you can dissect it somehow or, or bring it, uh, it's hard to explain, into your rational mind so you can say to yourself, well, look, this has happened to me before. I didn't go crazy before. I didn't die before. It always ends, uh, and it does. But it's very hard to convince somebody to do that. No one could have convinced me to do it. I can't take any credit for this. I mean, what choice did I have? Right, right. Um, and so uh, it, 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 it uh, eventually does, uh, does work. And that's pretty much what, what, uh, what Brian Bennett does in the book. But a big... But, but, uh, it re- this is this is not panic therapy. You know, the book's entertainment. So the main part of the book is really Brian versus his kidnappers, and, and his, his main kidnapper is a uh, a professional kidnapper who does this, who, who kidnap or hire. And, gotcha. Well, let's talk a moment about the Gideon Oliver series. Now, when you turn on the TV, you you can't turn it yeah. on with, without finding some forensic cop show airing. That's right. Um, but that certainly wasn't the case in the early 1980s when you wrote the first book in the series, Fellowship of Fear. I wonder, what, what was the impetus at that point for you writing about forensic anthropology? No, no, no one really knew that much about it, I don't think. Well, forensics. There had been one TV show uh, on some probably 15 years before called, um, let's see, Jack Klugman was in it, uh, Quincy. Quincy. And he was a forensic pathologist. That was kind of silly, really. You know, it was a typical TV entertainment. So, yeah, if if any of your listeners are looking for the guy to blame for for <laughs> every time they turn on the TV set, it's CSI Miami and CSI Peoria and CSI Kuala Lumpur. It's me. Yeah, I started this. The thing was, I I had just come back from teaching uh, two years in Europe on American military basis for the University of Maryland, short courses in, in uh, evolution, actually. Uh, and I had no job to come back to. And my wife suggested, uh, "You're good with words. You should write a book." And uh, and she, you know, I said about one. She said, "Well, you know, your thrillers are are 
are popular. This woman, by the way, who's read maybe three thrillers in her life, but she <laughs> heard they were popular. And so right. I, I did give it a, a shot, and I made the book about a person teaching evolution and forensic physical anthropology uh, on the military. But this is called Fellowship of Fear. Uh, yeah, she said uh, that on, on military bases in Europe, which is exactly what I was doing. And I kept the journal. And uh, I, uh, I threw in a couple of murders and a couple of his analyses because that's what I knew how to do. And I didn't think I was starting anything even for myself. I mean, I didn't expect to continue to write about this man. But when the reviews came in, and um, I think it was the New York Times that said a new Sherlock Holmes rises before us or, or something, along, something very delightful along those lines. And the fan mail, it was all about the, the skeletal analyses that he'd made. And it was only then when I was getting ready to write my second book that I had I found a niche that uh, that nobody was in at the time. Now, of course, there's Patricia Cornwall and Kathy Reich and a whole bunch of others. And, uh, but uh, you're right. I, you know, I didn't start it on purpose. I, I apologize to everybody. I was just doing what I knew how to do. And like what you know. And what was the what was the process for publication like for you to get Fellowship of Fear published? Did you did you uh, go through trying to find an agent? Did you go straight to a publisher? What was that like? I remember? went straight to a publisher, and and I, I'm sorry. I I I, I hope I. I'm sorry for the aspiring writers who are listening, but uh, <laughs> I, I got accepted with the first publisher that looked at the first uh, chapter of the book, which, which was Walker and Company. No, I didn't go to an agent. Um, I still don't recommend writers going to, to agents for their first books, but uh, I'm, I'm a, a great minority in that, in that area. Uh, but what I did do was, well, first I sent out a, a bunch of letters to publishers I'd heard of, and no, I didn't send excerpts or anything, and no, no, no interest came back letters. And then I took a look at Writer's Market and the Literary Marketplace, these two volumes that come out annually, and I looked for publishers that published the kind of books that I thought my book was. And uh, there was one called Walker and Company, it still exists, that seemed a really good fit. So I sent a letter and an excerpt, and the editor there, uh, the famed uh, Ruth Cavan, who died recently, but was pretty much the doyen of uh, mystery editors. Sure. That sure, send it, you know. Oh, you know her name? Yes, yes, I do. <clears throat> um, said, uh, sure, send the whole thing. I think uh, I think we're going to like it. And they did. So I, I've never had a rejection slip. <laughs> uh, isn't that, it's, you know, I tell you, Jeff, if I had known what the odds were of sending a book in over the transom like that, as they call it, uh, I wouldn't have had the stick to 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 continue. I, I, I thank God I didn't know. I was <laughs> Yeah, that's that's true. Well, I'm curious with the with the series, the the Gideon Oliver series. You've written, I think, fourteen novels in the series. I think I'm now working on my seventeenth. Oh, seventeenth. Okay. Um, well, as a writer, how do you keep a series fresh for yourself and for the readers? Do you, Do you ever fear that you're writing a, an Oliver novel that you've written before? Yeah, all the time. Um, for, fortunately, I have the last both. Oh, about eight on on computers, so I can I can go back and, and check it out. But yes, I feel that way uh, often. I mean, how many times can a guy stumble over? Oh, hey, this looks like a human bone. You can't keep, <laughs> you, can't keep, uh, uh, you can't keep doing that. And and I I I did get tired of Gideon Oliver, or he got tired of me, or something. And 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 this worst thing was a was a very the book 
was a very nice break for me, and I'm much happier now uh, uh, working with him. You, you know, you know what's some of the things. What what's one of the most difficult things with a series that's run this long is you want to you. I tried to, to not make it necessary for a reader to start with the first book. Right. Let's pick it up anywhere. Um, and so you want to make the character, uh, you want to make the, the reader see the character and understand the character, describe them. But you don't want to bore the pants off your readers who have read all 16 of the previous books. And so you have to come up with some fresh way of, of introducing his personality and him. And, and that is hard. And, and and how do you how do you feel like you're you're able to do that? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think whenever you ask a writer about the process, how do you do this or why do you do that? Uh, uh, what you get is always you know an after the fact rationalization. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, we, we do what comes to us, and yeah, and, yeah. and just hope it keeps coming. Sure, sure. Well, what is your writing schedule like? Do you write every day? And and also, I'm curious, do you outline your novels, or or do you write organically and kind of see where the story takes you? No, I, most of my books. What, the worst thing is an exception are, are mysteries, not not thrillers. Uh, I think of the worst thing as a kind of psychological thriller. I see the difference, by the way, as being basically in a mystery, the questions are uh, who did it and how did he do it and why did he do it. In a thriller, well, most, most of the time in a thriller, you already know who the bad guy is. Right. And, and the question is, you know, what's going to happen next? How's this guy going to get out of this problem? And that kind of thing. And so most of what I write are mysteries. And so in order not to, in order to be able to mislead but not lie to the reader, uh, I've got to know where it's going uh, and who did it, and at least that much. Um, and so I, 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 I know the, the elements of, of the plot, uh, but, and I start with a, an outline, typically just one page, and it mostly consists of episodes that I'm going to write. Uh, mm-hmm. And that changes since I, I never throw away anything now. It's so easy to keep on the computer. The worst thing had 34 different outlines made. That is, revised outlines. The wow. first one and then 33 more. Well, yeah, but most of the time, it's not that they were changed completely, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, they still started and ended in the same place. Right, uh, right. But, but as you write the book, of course, uh, your creative process kicks in, and the ideas you had when you started... Uh, have to get modified, as as you know, every writer will tell you. Your characters don't always do what you want them to do, and so you have to change to uh, accommodate them. Sure. Well, do you but ride I, every day? What's, oh, what's your sorry, schedule? Yeah. I do That's ride cool. every day, and uh, now yeah, I've even convinced my wife to let me ride on Saturdays and Sundays, most days too. Uh, <laughs> I it's it's great, you know. It's uh, I don't. It's a pleasure. So, but what I usually do is I start at either eight or nine, depending if I've had a workout or a walk first in the morning. If I have, it's nine. If I haven't, it's eight. And then I don't work to at word count because I write so slowly that it would be depressing. Um, uh, but I work, and I don't work to a time. But I work until I get this feeling of running out of steam, uh, which usually happens about two or three o'clock. And when I know I, I, I know I'm there, when all the work I've done that day starts looking awful to me like garbage waste of time uh and i said okay that's enough the critical faculty has just cut in it's time to call it quits today and that's usually when i stop 
then the next day, after a good night's sleep, it, uh, it, I think, oh, well, that wasn't so bad what I did yesterday. I think I'll continue there. <laughs> uh, what tips or advice do you have for someone who's listening who's an aspiring writer? Um, well, you know, I assume that, that that person we're talking about has another kind of uh, uh, <laughs> income. Because most yeah. of you, <laughs> you know, don't quit your data, but that's not the advice I want to give. And that, that, that the person is working at something else. When I started writing, I started, uh, I was working, uh, and I, I began uh, writing, trying to write from 7 to 10 at night. But I, 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 the creative juices were long gone. So I started writing at 4.30 in the morning instead, before I went off to teach or whatever job I was doing at the time. And I do uh, recommend uh, that. Now, it means that at some point during the day, for me, it was usually about 3 o'clock, I was underperforming at my paid job. <laughs> but that, it was only government work anyway, so <laughs> it didn't much matter. Uh, uh, and I do really recommend that, that, the, that, that the work be done not in bits and pieces, but on a regular schedule. I worked five days a week at that time, 4.30 to 7, and just would turn out the stuff every morning and to work even when, it, when, it, when you're not inspired because, uh, I mean... I've got altogether to my credit now, I, I, I think it's credit that's um, tw something like 24, 25 books, and I ran out of inspiration a very, about 22 books ago. And so <laughs> just work on, on, on uh, a job. Um, and, oh, and also, not, not to be... Oh, no, I don't want to give other advice because it really wouldn't apply to everybody. It would apply to me, and so... Ah, what the heck, I'll say it. Okay. <laughs> I don't believe in critique groups, um, especially if you're a writer like me. I don't think you should belong to a group, a circle of people who sit around criticizing each other's work. Even a, a even if it's a, a say a, a college teacher that's that's a part of the group. If you're like me, you don't have a lot of confidence in what you write, and I do all the second guessing I need to do about what I write. And if I belonged to a group, and I'm talking about even in my, when I was writing my first book, mm -hmm. and I would have all these doubts about what I was writing. I still have doubts about what. When I turn in a book, I feel as if it's, oh, my God, this is, this is terrible. The editor will never take this. Well, they always take it. I've never been turned down. And the book always you know, gets good critical reviews and does, does uh, fairly well. But if I were part of a critique group and someone would say, well, uh, you know, Aaron, um, I think your motivation is a little off here in Chapter 3. I don't see how this character would, would come to do that. I think to myself, oh, yeah, you know, he's right. I, I'd better change that. And then someone else would say, uh, um, you, you know, the, 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 the plot is a little obscure here, or this, this person's speech doesn't sound like it sounded in the last chapter. And I'd say, oh, yeah, that's right, too. And I'd be, I, I'd be, I'd be, you know, I have all the second all the, the doubts that I need, I'd be changing the book all the time, and right. whose book would it be when it, when it came out? And how would I do the next book? Would I have to go back to the group? So if you're going to succeed as a writer, you're going to have to have your own voice anyway. So start with it. That's, that's interesting. Um, so what are you working on now? What are you writing now? Now it's Gideon Oliver, um, and it's set in uh, Tuscany. In Italy, I just came back a couple of weeks ago after uh, spending a couple of weeks uh, there. 
I've said all my books in different places. I've said books in, well, this is my, about my second or third book in Italy. I've said them in Tahiti, uh, on the Amazon, the Yucatan, St. Petersburg, Budapest. Um, I find the place very, very uh, stimulating for one book. And then, then I've kind of run out of energy on that place. I could never do what Bob Parker did, you know, and write all his books in Boston or Sarah right. Koretsky and writing all the books in Chicago. I just, uh, I need, I need a new place. And, uh, and that's one of the nice perks about the, the writing job. I always go. Um, and um, my character, Gideon Oliver, likes to live pretty well and eat pretty well, so I have to research good restaurants and <laughs> hotels, and, and it's tax-deductible. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great. Well, reasonably tax-deductible, yeah, too, because yeah. I wouldn't have the nerve to write about a place I hadn't been to. Sure, sure. So this is a Gideon Oliver that takes place in the wine country of, uh, of Tuscany. Great. Winery. Um, well, well, many writers also read a lot. I'm curious if there are any recent novels or nonfiction books that you've read that, that stuck with you and that you would want to mention. I, I stopped reading uh, fic, uh, uh, crime fiction a, a, a pretty long time ago now. After mm -hmm. I won that Edgar of mine that you mentioned, I, I became chairman of the, the Best Novel Edgar Committee next year, and then later on I was the chairman of the Edgars in general. And when you're when you're in a position like that, you read 400 mysteries in a year, and right. uh, it was just enough. I started by, uh, you know, I just also when I read mysteries uh, and thrillers, I can't get lost in them the way I can with with ordinary fiction. That is, I I see what the writer's doing. Ah, why I can see why this person's being inserted in here. Mm -hmm. um, I see what what he's trying to build, and so it's it's sort of educational. But it's not fun anymore. And for me, fiction means just getting lost in in in, in it and and reading along passively and not just putting yourself in the place that the writer wants you to be. I guess my favorite fiction series has to be um, wouldn't that be great if I can't think of his name? Patrick O'Brien's right uh, series about. Um, Gosh, what's his name? Napoleonic. I'm, I'm not. A, I don't like historical fiction very much, but this book is great. There was a movie made with Russell Crowe. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, he, I know, I know what you're referring to. Yeah, Master um, and Commander. Master and Commander. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I've been through. I think there are 17 of those books. I've actually been through all of them twice, and and I, I almost never read any book twice. Anyway, I think they are. I didn't understand half the language about, you know, <laughs> upping the boom to the jig, you know. But it didn't matter. I think the language is, is magical. I think Sherlock Holmes, are the fi those Conan Doyle stories are the finest of all uh, the mystery series. Um, right now I'm reading a book by, uh, that I'm really liking by David Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-L-S, very witty uh, English writer. And probably the last... Uh, fiction book before that that I enjoyed was by Julian Fellows, F-E-L-L-O-W-E-S, mm -hmm. another Brit. He wrote um, several TV series, uh, <laughs> names of which are escaping me right now. But anyway, the book was Snobs. And if you like novels of social manners that are really witty, it's, it's, a, it's a very funny book. Nonfiction, I'm reading now... Uh, a book by Nathaniel Philbrick called Mayflower. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's about pretty much the starting of the country. Extremely interesting. I, I, I actually read that. Writing. It is interesting. Oh yeah. So you yeah. know, I, I 
I don't know how come, but I've never heard of the guy before, and he's got all these other, you know, that wonderful feeling you get when you pick up a book by somebody you don't know, and you say, this guy's a good writer, and then you turn in the front, and you see that there's 11 other books that he's written, and you, oh, boy. Yeah, I know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was and, interesting. There were lots of, there were lots of, um, lots of information and lots of, no, no, I'm not... <laughs> I was just going to say, there's lots of information and lots of stories in that book about the founding of America that I, I really yeah. had never heard. Yeah, this is new stuff to me. Yeah. Uh, and William Manchester is dead now, but I thought, I thought he was among the finest uh, of the biographies. Oh, David McCullough. Yeah. Right. Uh, Truman is, uh, is, I think, just a terrific book. Great. Well, is there is there anything that we haven't discussed that you would like to mention? Again, the the book that uh, just came out is the worst thing, and it's Thank available you. in bookstores now. Is there anything else? Oh uh, no, I, this is fun, Jeff. I, I have nothing else to say. I guess I'm going to go get back with Gideon now. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Aaron Elkins, the author of the Gideon Oliver series. His new novel, a standalone thriller, The Worst Thing, is available in bookstores now. And you can check out more about Aaron at his website at www.aaronelkins.com. Aaron, thanks for doing the interview. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I enjoyed it very much. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.